BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. I'm Michael Krasny. Coming up, we'll speak with Matthew Iglesias. He's the co-founder and senior correspondent for Vox and author of a new book called One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. In it, he argues that the United States has lost the ambition and capacity to compete against China and other global powers. And he's got a bold proposal to rectify that, encourage more immigration and births to triple the size of our population. We'll hear his case and why he says he's against the eco-pessimism on the left and the nostalgia politics and cultural pessimism on the right. That's next, after this news. Welcome to this morning's forum. I'm Michael Krasny. There are 330 million people in the United States, and Vox co-founder and economics reporter Matthew Iglesias says we should add 670 million more. That's the subject of his new book, One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger, in which he argues that with a bigger population, the U.S. could maintain its status as a world superpower, increase its wealth, and improve Americans' standards of living. We'll dig into his argument and what it would mean for domestic policies on climate change, immigration, and health care. And we'll also talk to him about the partisan acrimony that's intensifying a day after Senator Mitt Romney said he'd favor a floor vote on President Trump's nominee to replace deceased U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and how the balance of power on the court is likely to change. I want to welcome Matthew Iglesias to the program. Good to have you back. It's really good to be here. I... Uh, want to talk about your book, but let's talk first about the Supreme Court and about what's going on, especially what you've written about, because uh, you've written a, a good deal about history and how we got to uh, the fight over the Supreme Court, over the Bork nomination, the Democrats block to uh, well, Mitch McConnell engineering uh, the unlikelihood of uh, the or even the impossibility of uh, Merrick Garland even getting a hearing. And uh, as you point out in your writing, it used to be a lot more bipartisan. It used to be kind of more concession to a presidential pick. So, well, we might ask ourselves how we became so polarized. But what I want to get to with you is something that you point out that most people aren't all that aware of, and that's the Senate map that, uh, as you would put it, the power that has been exercised by Mitch McConnell uh, is power not from the will of the people, but from lines on a map. Explain that. Well, look, uh, if you look at California, uh, the nation's largest state, obviously, 
It's got two senators, a very heavily Democratic state. Texas, number two state, it's a Republican lean, but these days only a modest Republican lean. Uh, number three, you know, you've got um, Florida, then New York, Illinois. It's mostly Democratic leaning states. Uh, then you look at the sort of the smallest states, right, who are most overrepresented in the Senate. Uh, there's a couple liberal ones like Vermont in there, uh, but they're mostly conservative leaning states like Alaska, Wyoming, North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana. Hannah. Uh, so it adds up. And I, you know, I talk to experts, the sort of number crunchers who work for the political parties, and they say that the Senate leans about seven points more Republican than the nation as a whole, uh, which doesn't mean Democrats can't win a majority. Um, some people think they're going to win a majority this November. Uh, they won as recently as 2012. But to get a majority in the Senate, Democrats need a landslide, uh, whereas Republicans can lose the votes of most people, as they did in 2016, as they did in 2018, and retain control of the Senate. Uh, the Senate, of course, is very important to judicial nominations. It used to be that, you know, any reasonably qualified nominee would kind of sail through. That's not true these days. Uh, Republicans blocked President Obama's nominee. Uh, Democrats would block President Trump's nominee if they could, but they can't. Uh, so what you have is not only a skewed map that determines control of the Senate, but control of the Senate determines control of the judiciary. And so you have this kind of uh, democratic imbalance, but it then entrenches conservative power so that even if Joe Biden becomes president next year, Everything he does is going to be subject to veto by this 6-3 conservative-dominated Supreme Court. And it's a real problem for the legitimacy of the American Republic going forward. And it's also based on the fact that the Senate map gives rural areas about two and a half times the voting power of the big cities. Democrats have to get a win of Senate races by, as I think you're pointing out, or six to seven points, which really amounts to kind of a landslide. And that all goes back to gerrymandering. Yeah, I mean, it's well, there's gerrymandering of the House districts gives Republicans maybe a three or four point advantage there. And the Senate map is, you know, nobody gerrymandered it exactly, or 19th century Congress did. Uh, but it's very skewed to Republicans. Uh, it overrepresents rural areas, which, you know, some people say, well, that's what the founders intended. Uh, but it isn't. I mean, all 13 states were rural states originally. Um, so uh, a rural person gets about two and a half times as much voting weight as an urban person. A white person gets about, sorry, to put it another way, uh, a black person gets about 75% as much voting power as a white person. A Latino person gets even less than that. Um, and these seem like, you know, really fundamental injustices built into the, the system. And, you know, unless we have some kind of... Um, population transfer scheme, uh, which might come out of my book, I, I am here to sell books on some level, uh, it's going to be a, you know, a huge problem going forward if, if urbanites and non-white people are systematically sort of disenfranchised in the legislature. And we will indeed talk about your book, but let me just push forward on this a bit, because you write about how abortion has been so central where the Supreme Court is concerned, and I think uh, make a, a point that's uh, worth noting, as far as our listeners are concerned, that both uh, Sandra Day O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy uh, considered themselves conservatives and tried to make sure that they had successors who were conservatives, but nevertheless, because they were in favor of, uh, well, I, I, I sort of disdain sometimes the pro-life, pro-choice labels, but because they were uh, pro-choice, they were nevertheless not considered conservatives. Uh, and yet, Guns continue to play a big role in this as well. And you've written recently about, <clears throat> I want to get into this to some extent because a lot of your background is in economics, about the fact that 
um, we, we, it's now hard to change a law. There are more veto powers and increasingly aggressive uh, uh, judicial branch makes it extremely difficult to get laws through. And you use the example of, of guns here, not based uh, on the Second Amendment, but on interstate commerce. Go back to 1995, right? Yeah. So, you know, starting in the New Deal era, the courts ruled that uh, the power to regulate commerce between the several states uh, and other things, you know, is a broad grant of authority to to the United States Congress to regulate the economy. Uh, then starting in 1995, the Supreme Court has started striking down not old laws, right, not New Deal era regulations, not great society programs, but new things Congress will do. So the Gun-Free Schools Act case, uh, it was interesting. It sounds like a Second Amendment case, but it actually became a Commerce Clause case. And they said, well, Congress's desire to stop people from shooting kids near schools, it's not closely enough related to international, uh, to interstate commerce for our taste. So you can't do that. And you know, it's a it's a sort of assertion of judicial prerogatives, right? Who gets to decide whether something is important to interstate commerce or not? Does Congress, the elected representatives of the American people, decide what's important, or do some judges decide? And you know, Sandra Day O'Connor, uh, Anthony Kennedy, they were more moderate than some of the new justices coming along, but they were quite conservative in this regard. Uh, and it's sort of moved forward with this Affordable Care Act litigation that I think we're going to hear a lot about in congressional hearings. Um, and it's that they are now saying that, well, certain kinds of regulation uh, related to the insurance mandate, that that's outside the power to regulate interstate commerce, uh, even though it clearly is related to interstate commerce in a very direct way. They've sort of made up this idea that it's a you can't regulate inactivity, only activity. And it's a shot across the bow, right, that any new laws, anything that conservatives object to is going to go through this litigation ringer. You know, you got to get a majority in the House, a majority in the Senate. you got to get the president to sign the bill. And then five or six justices could just kind of toss it out. And it's going to be, I think, an increasingly big deal for policymaking going forward if we have a Democratic majority next year. Talking again with Matthew Iglesias, he's co-founder and senior correspondent for Vox, and we're going to discuss his book. His book is called One Billion Americans, A Case for Thinking Bigger. We're getting some emails on that. And by the way, if you'd like to join us, let me tell you how you can do that. You can give us a call right now and be part of the program. The number to call is 866-733-6786. Number again for your calls, 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. Before we get to talking about population in your book here, um, I'm wondering about what recourse the Democrats have. There's talk about, well, if they do indeed win over a legislature majority, they can get through uh, more people on the court, and there's nothing in the Constitution that says you can't have more people on the court. They're talking about, uh, well, getting rid of the filibuster. They're talking about making D.C. and Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, the U.S. Virgin Islands states, all of these kinds of things, as well as expanding the lower courts to improve the federal judiciary system. Um, but the reality is, um, is what in all this? Uh, I mean, for example, uh, Vice President Biden at this point uh, hasn't said whether or not he would support what's often described as stacking the court. And in the past, he's been against it. 
Yeah, I mean, look, you got to win first, right? And you win elections by talking about your desire to solve problems in people's lives, right? Regular people, persuadable voters, they are not interested in hearing about these institutional reforms. I, I, and I think, you know, Vice President Biden is right to keep his focus on things like health care, the minimum wage, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, what he wants to do. Now, if he wins, if Democrats get a majority in the Senate, they need to take inside the Beltway stuff seriously, right? People may not care about it, but living here inside the Beltway, I can tell you that it matters a lot to Congress and what actually happens. If Democrats accept the filibuster as a principle, then almost nothing on Biden's agenda is going to pass. There isn't going to be a minimum wage increase if you let a Republican minority veto it. Uh, so I think, you know, they, they've got to look at getting rid of that. If you get rid of that, then longtime Democratic Party platform commitments to making D.C., Puerto Rico, and I would look at the U.S. Virgin Islands as Guam as well, to admitting them as states, uh, that can pass, and it should pass. You know, Not as, quote-unquote, retaliation. Uh, people who are American citizens should have representation in Congress. Uh, it will make it a fairer system, fair to the individuals, fair on a national basis. So you think the Democratic strategy of just holding holding their heads down and talking about mainly policy issues, health care, minimum wage, the pandemic and so forth is going to possibly work? I mean, I think it can. Democrats are doing very well in the polls. And, you know, I, I just think you you emphasize different things depending on, on where you're running. Now, the court packing issue, that's explosive. And I do think that you want to be careful there. I'm not against it necessarily as an option, but you would need something to happen. Right. That would be the reason if the court hands down a truly outrageous decision, taking Medicaid benefits away from millions of people, which is a very realistic possibility, you know, then you have to do something about that. Well, it's it's uh, sort of on my mind that uh, Vice President Biden uh, did shift on the Hyde Amendment and shifted on the crime bill. And this would represent another shift if indeed he did say that he was in favor of putting more on the court. But we'll perhaps get into that later. I did want to get into your book as well. And we're going to cut away for just about 60 seconds. Again, we're talking with Matthew Iglesias and you can join the program by calling in at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. You're listening to Forum on KQED Public Radio. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking this hour with Matthew Iglesias, co-founder and senior correspondent of Vox. And we're going to discuss his new book in a moment, One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger, which has stirred up a good deal of controversy and interest on many quarters, for many quarters. First, let's get a caller on here. Dan joins us from Santa Clara. Dan, welcome. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, the Supreme Court famously can read election results just like everybody else. So that's something to bear in mind going forward. Regarding uh, winning the rural votes, if Democrats were to focus more on economic issues rather than the old social conservative versus social liberal issues, it seems like we could make better inroads there. And to that point, directly a segue into your book, it seems to me that rural American voters do not necessarily want this country to accelerate becoming less white. Comments, please. All right. Matt Iglesias. 
do that. Uh, that said, the country is uh, becoming less white, whether people like it or not. That's just sort of a, a fact of life. Like, you know, one thing about my, my book, right, it's called One Billion Americans. I want to get at that out there. It's a very patriotic book, right? This is a book about taking some ideas that I think progressives like, uh, more generous immigration policy, more openness to foreigners, and a more generous welfare state, doing more to support families who have children with cash, with preschool, with other things like that. Uh, but trying to make an argument about it in a way that taps into people's interest in patriotism, people's interest in family life, uh, people's interest in seeing rural communities revived. We have seen depopulation happening in a majority of our rural counties right now. It's um, aspirational, though. When you talk about a billion, you're, you're really being aspirational uh, because there are many who have countered that as just being impossible. And wh where are the immigrants going to be coming from is perhaps the biggest question of all. <laughs> Look, you have a compounding over time, right? Uh, right now, Canada is growing its population at 1.4% per year, which is not that fast, but it's faster than we are. If we could grow at that pace every year for 80 years, you get to a billion by 2100. China's population is shrinking slowly. They will also be at about a billion by 2100. Uh, so then, you know, we, we dominate the future forever. Uh, USA, rah, 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 I'm all for it. Um, but look, uh, what we should be doing, right, is talking about immigration in a smarter way. That this is not a favor that America does to foreigners. Uh, it's something that we do, we have traditionally done. You look at how George Washington talked about immigration. You look at how Abraham Lincoln talked about immigration. They all talked about this as a way to strengthen the country, to settle the land, to build ourselves up. And it continues to be just an incredible opportunity for America in the future that so many people from all around the world want to move here. That doesn't mean we need to say yes to just anyone who happens to show up, but we also shouldn't be slamming the doors shut. We shouldn't be turning away foreign college students the way Trump is. Trump is making it harder for foreign-born technology workers, spouses, uh, to be able to come work here. And it's crazy stuff, right? And we've got to talk about it in a way that reflects the ambitions of the American people, uh, the ambitions of the United States to be, you know, to be a, a wealthy, prosperous, powerful society. Immigration has always been a key part of that recipe. And it drives me nuts, frankly, to see a president who, who talks about making America great again, uh, throwing away so much of the foundation foundation of that greatness. Well, we'll continue talking about this. Uh, I'm wondering, though, how you respond to one of our listeners, John, who says, in a world that is already overpopulated, which is using up resources faster than they can be regenerated, where billions of people are going to be displaced by sea level rise in areas that are too hot to live, how does more people help? Uh, you know, I, I just, I don't think it's true that the world is overpopulated. Um, we're not running out of resources. You know, in some ways, we should have too much resources, right? Um, there's lots of coal in the ground. There's plenty of coal in the ground. And unfortunately, it means people can dig it up and burn it. Uh, and that creates big problems. What we suffer from is a deficit of technologies in certain key areas. We have made incredible breakthroughs in terms of zero carbon electricity production. Uh, but we need to deploy that stuff. There is, we need to put more money at it. And we also need to take barriers away. I have uh, solar panels on my rooftop uh, here in Washington. And it's great. Um, you know, I save money. I feel better about the planet. I'm really excited. The struggle to get them up there because of the historic preservation concerns, it blew my mind. Uh, because, of course, it's true. Um, solar panels, uh, you know, a, a house with solar panels on them, it doesn't look like an old house. Uh, but the problem with old houses is that they're based on an unsustainable energy model. 
right? Like if we want to be sustainable in the future, we need houses to look different from old houses. We also have a lot of problems though with climate that we simply don't know how to solve at this point. There's no good zero carbon way to make cement or to make steel, um, to make concrete rather, or, or to make steel. Um, but we need that stuff. We're not going to have a future in which um, there's like no buildings. Uh, we've got to develop the next generation of breakthroughs like we've already made with electric vehicles, we've already made with solar, but we have to take that into new spaces. Uh, we're not going to shrink the world's population to solve these problems. Uh, what we need to do is say yes to solutions. Well, I'm getting some response already to what you've just laid out for us. Pam writes, the earth cannot support the way humans live at the current level, nor capitalism's negative impact. I question your thinking or agenda on this topic, having not read the book. Bottom line for me, I don't agree. And John says, uh, excuse me, Noel tweets, somehow I doubt the author lives in California where getting multifamily housing built is almost impossible. Is he against open space preservation? Um, I am not against open space preservation. I am very much against the fact that getting multifamily housing built in California is almost impossible. Uh, you know, why can't you build multifamily housing in California? It's not because uh, people in California don't know how to design it. It's not because construction workers in California don't know how to build it. It's not because there's no space for it to go in. It's because the rules in California prevent it, right? No matter how expensive the land gets, uh, you simply can't build it. And that is not good, right? That's not a paradigm that we ought to accept. There have been fights in the state legislature in California about changing the land use rules. Um, and they like, but they ought to say yes to that. I mean, frankly, whether they do a billion Americans or not, California needs to do something about its housing problem. Uh, but it's crazy to let bad land use rules stand in the way of a better future for our country. You're talking about something, though, that really, forgive me for putting it into a cliche, uh, the devil's in the details here. I mean, not only with respect to housing, but jobs, uh, how to pay, because you're really talking about setting up kind of a different and more expansive social welfare state. Uh, and, and then the big decision about who to let in. And it seems that in some respects, let me just take that for a moment and isolate it and put it in a silo. You seem to be more on board with uh, things that have come from President Trump about getting people who speak English, who are technically trained, who can add to the economy. And uh, I don't know if you're in favor of Norwegians specifically, like he was, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be entirely wry about this, but I'm trying to bring a little levity to it because it seems like, in other words, you're not talking about anything that would bring in, uh, well, where are these immigrants going to come from, first of all? Sure. Uh, look, what I am trying to say is we should have more immigrants, right? Um, so, you know, Trump, he, he's, uh, he, he likes to talk about Norwegians. Um, but like, what's he doing? Years ago, I, I actually had an intern and she was Norwegian. Um, and she uh, had finished college in the United States. She had a student visa. And then she got what's called a J-1 uh, practical training visa. So she was able to do an internship uh, at the magazine I was working for. Uh, she was a nice person. Uh, but then when her J-1 expired. She had to go back home to Norway. Um, President Trump has made it harder to get those kind of uh, practical training extensions. So we've got fewer Norwegians here. And so his only interest even in the Norwegians is to say, well, he doesn't like people from Central America, right? But there's nothing stopping us from simply changing the rules to make it easier for foreign-born professionals with uh, professional skills and a likelihood to pay high tax rates come to the country. So I, I try to take him 
at his word or conservatives at their word that this is what they want. And I want to say, like, let's do it, right? Let's not use foreign-born doctors and computer programmers as an excuse to get rid of our fruit and vegetable pickers. Like, let's say yes to them. Like, more is more in this regard. There's no... You know, maybe we should have complete open borders with Norway. Uh, are they going to come here to mooch off our stingier welfare state? Like, what are, what are we even afraid of in that regard? Uh, the problem is, is that the congressional politics have been stuck around this idea of a hard visa cap, and they've been stuck there forever. So anytime anyone comes up with an idea, they say, well, maybe we ought to let more uh, more medical professionals come here. We've got a healthcare cost problem. Well, then we've got to take a visa away from someone else. And then, you know, advocates for that ethnic community say, well, no, 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 let's not do that. Um, and, and I sympathize. The premise, so let's have more immigrants. Well, the premise behind the idea of having more immigrants is that um, we've got to keep up with our exceptionalism, being number one, being ahead of China, being ahead of the Asian powers. I include India in this, of course, as you do in your book. And uh, in order to do that, more and more people are needed. And they're probably more needed in the flyover parts of the United States than they are in the dense urban centers where most people settle. But I'm wondering about the math of this. Uh, some have pointed out when you're talking about 670 million more people, you take Mexico, Honduras, Guatemala, Canada, the rest of Central America, it's not much over 205 million. And, and so <laughs> this is pretty aspirational, isn't it, Matthew? Well, they're not all coming tomorrow. I mean, I'm talking about a, a multi-generational uh, timeline. And all, we're also talking about people having children in the United States. I mean, we just do far too little to support families with children right now. Um, and, and we should be doing more. And people would have, you know, modestly more children if we did that. It, it compounds over time. Uh, so, you know, there was a great proposal from the U.S. Conference of Mayors, uh, which is a good organization if you're interested in cities. They said, look, let's create a new visa program to let cities whose population are declining, places like Cleveland, places like Akron, places like Grand Rapids, places like Rochester, New York. Let's let them sponsor extra visas uh, for people who might want to come over here. So instead of having medical records and IT jobs outsourced to Bangalore, maybe we can let those companies build offices in our post-industrial cities, bring the workers over there. Then the workers become taxpayers locally so they can maintain their fire and police and educational services. They become customers for the local businesses so people can you know, run their barbershops, run their restaurants, they can have their construction companies. People's uh, Real estate values will be worth something then, so the sweat equity doesn't go away. We could really think about uh, tackling the challenges that are facing our, I, I don't quite want to call them declining, but they're, they're hurting. There are a lot of communities in the Midwest especially, but also some in the Northeast and some even in the interior South, uh, who are really hurting from economic changes that have happened over the past uh, couple of generations. And they could use more people. And we have people who are clamoring to come to the United States. We have companies who are clamoring to be able to bring them over. And we can say, look, we can put limits on it. We can say, look, we don't need necessarily more people streaming into Los Angeles. Uh, but if you want to go to cities that have space, that have the housing, that have the infrastructure, like you're welcome to it. Central to your whole argument, I believe, is the kind of market that China has, the power of China's market. I mean, you write about a NBA executive taking all kinds of heat because he was in support of the Hong Kong protests and uh, took all kinds of heat because of the importance of China. And then you write also about uh, Hollywood censors and their moves uh, by Chinese demands. Uh, the market, in other words, plays, and you're an economist by training, uh, the central role in your thinking here. We have to have more numbers to really meet up to the market needs globally. 
You know, look, we don't have to. Uh, You look at Canada, you look at New Zealand, you see very happy, small English-speaking countries with similar cultural traditions to ours. And they're just not important countries on the global stage. They kind of have to take or leave what global politics gives them. I just don't think that that's America, right? That's not been our tradition over the past 200 years. Let me bring a caller on. John joins us. John, welcome. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I'd like to uh, counter a couple of the comments that I heard uh, some listeners um, weigh in about, uh, you know, about the planet um, being overpopulated and, you know, um, you know, kind of evidently scarce on resources and then dovetail what your guests kind of had in response there. And I wanted to offer another kind of a similar perspective um, and maybe elaborate a bit. There's a man named um, Jacques fresco and uh he has this project called the venus project and uh, basically what uh kind of the 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 summary of that is that uh the you know the world being overpopulated and um short on resources is actually a, a myth and in fact he 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 goes to say that we have more than enough resources to support the population our problem is not a resource problem our problem is a economic issue and the fact that we have a, you know, largely a, a, a capitalist based economy where we have this, uh, this scarcity, um, kind of this uh, manufactured scarcity. And then which, uh, you know, brings uh, all kinds of types of inequality. And what he, what he uh, is pushing is um, a resource based economy um, where, you know, we're centered around uh, utilizing our resources and technology in the most efficient ways and where, you know, it kind of implies we're not driven by profit uh, like we are in a capital-based economy. We're really driven by the overall, uh, overall common good and well-being. I'd like to kind of hear what your guest has to yeah, say Yeah, John, let that. me thank you for those comments and go right to the heart of that because uh, I think, uh, Matthew, you're on board here that overpopulation uh, doesn't necessarily increase climate change. Uh, the argument is it's tied to unequal distribution of resources. Uh, Yeah, I mean, look, the unequal distribution of resources is a big issue. One of the biggest forces, globally speaking, for equality that we have is immigration, right? So I I cite in the book studies showing people from low-income countries, from poor countries, when they move here, uh, their income rises four or five-fold. So that's tremendous, tremendous increase. And what's amazing about the power of migration is foreign aid also works, right? I mean, we can take our money, we can give it to Haiti. Uh, when we do that, we have less money. So, you know, people don't like that. People like to have resources. Uh, When we let foreigners come here, it's win-win, right? Native-born Americans gain from immigration, but the immigrants also gain incredible amounts. And so I think if you care about equality on a global basis at all, I mean, you really have to be thinking about what can we do to create more openness to migration? It also helps the country uh, that, that sends people, right? So when countries send more people to the United States, they get remittances back and they also get a boost in human capital, right? If we were to say, look, if you train to be a dentist, you can clean teeth, you take a test, you do that in your home country, we'll give you a visa, no questions asked, go go serve an American community that's short on tooth care. Uh, that encourages people abroad to get the training because the training has value. Right now, we don't give people a good way to come legally. So people go through tremendous efforts to come illegally, 
right? It's not easy. Uh, they're trying really hard. If we give them something more constructive to do that says, now you clear the bar, that forms more human capital. It raises incomes on both sides of the border, and it can be a real good one. But in addition to that, you're talking about maximizing the possibility of adding to families. Uh, in other words, uh, something like what's presently in the works in Canada, giving money to those who have more children. Yeah, absolutely. So Canada has moved recently to give cash grants to parents of young children, and it's just a tremendous blow to child poverty. Uh, there's a proposal, Senate Democrats have it, not all of them, but almost all of them, called the American Families Act. Uh, it would reduce the poverty rate in the United States by about a third, uh, the child poverty rate by almost half. Uh, and estimates also suggest that people would have more, more children uh, if it was able to do it. I also talk in the book about preschool, uh, sort of daycare for children? Uh, what do we do over the summertime? I, I was working on this before the pandemic. So, you know, I say like, well, imagine if we just didn't have public schools at all. Um, you know, how, how burdensome that would be on parents and how many fewer kids we would have. Now, thanks to the pandemic, uh, we actually get a window into what it's like to have no public schools. It's really hard. Well, you're talking about a lot in this book, not only expanding the welfare state, as we're sort of intimating here, but zoning rules being changed and investing in transportation, uh, commuter rails and so forth. And uh, we'll talk some more with Matthew Iglesias about his book and about the Supreme Court and whatever else is on your mind. You can join us and I invite you to do that. If you have some thoughts or if you have some questions, be part of the program. Give us a call. 866-733-6786 is the number for your calls. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us. Forum at KQED.org. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Our guest this hour is Matthew Iglesias, co-founder and senior correspondent for Vox. And we're talking about, well, we initially started talking about the Supreme Court. We're now talking about his book, One Billion Americans, A Case for Thinking Bigger and Why We Need to Encourage More Immigration and More Births in the United States. Uh, let me read some comments. Um, here's one comment that's right behind you. Uh, and then I'll read some <laughs> that are pushing back and you can respond to anyone you want here. But here's a listener who writes, I'm intrigued. Much of the U.S. is literally vacant. We already produce enough food to feed everyone on the planet, but our infrastructure incentivizes waste and hoarding of resources. We have the knowledge and technology to live much more sustainably. We just need the willpower to change regardless of how much our population grows. On the other hand, here's Richard who says, Matthew Iglesias is an uninformed technology, a technological optimist. Uh, he talks as though we have decades to develop technologies to combat climate change when we're already experiencing serious harm and it will only get worse over the coming decades. Regardless of what we do, we need radical change now. And Stephen writes, sounds like another economist who never took Ecology 101. All technology has done is allow population to increase, kicking the can down the road and making the problem bigger. And John writes, Americans consume resources at much higher rates than residents of most other countries, including industrialized nations. How would a vastly expanded American population do anything other than accelerate the ecological disaster that we're now witnessing firsthand? Those three comments sort of form a motif here, and I'd like to get your reaction, Matt. Sure, look, uh, Americans are richer than people in other countries. That's what, that when people say we quote unquote consume more resources, that's what they mean. Our GDP is higher. We have higher incomes. Our sort of per 
you know, unit of GDP, uh, resource consumption is lower than you see in other countries. So it is true. If you think that keeping the entire developed world trapped in poverty forever is a good solution to ecological problems, then I do not have the answer for you. I want those people to be prosperous. I want them to have better lives. Um, it is true that that puts some pressure on the environment. In terms of technology, I mean, am I an optimist? I, I don't know if I'm an optimist or not. I have no idea whether or not we are going to solve the problem of how to do zero carbon uh, steel and concrete manufacturing. What I'm saying is that we are not going to have a future in which people don't use steel and concrete right? We are either going to solve that problem, in which case we're going to be able to grow, or we're not, in which case we're going to have to live with the consequences. I, I think that people um, are frustrated by the climate issue because the federal government has done so little on it, right? There is so much that we could be doing right now to phase out fossil fuel extraction, to promote the use of renewable electricities, to accelerate the adoption of electric vehicles, and we're not doing it, right? It makes people angry and they should be angry. They should be demanding change really, really fast. Uh, just because that change isn't happening, though, doesn't mean we can have magical thinking about the other problems or say, well, the solution is instead of adopting clean energy, we're just going to have no population. Like that doesn't make sense. We should have people. We should have prosperous people. We should be using sustainable technologies. You said you don't know whether you would describe yourself as an optimist, but as I said in the introduction, you're certainly somewhat against really, I think, uh, the ecological pessimism of the left, but also the nostalgia politics and the cultural pessimism on the right. Let's let's talk for just a few moment, uh, a moment or two here about where you see yourself. Um, National Review actually took on your book. Your book has been taken on by the left and the right. Um, but they called you in the National Review a liberal nationalist, which is kind of an interesting, almost oxymoronic statement, especially since President Trump calls himself a nationalist. But some of what you're saying does sound, frankly, like nationalism. I think I'm a patriotic American, you know? I mean, I look at the words of Abraham Lincoln at the, the Gettysburg Address. I was there at the battlefield with my son a, a few weeks ago. He's gotten interested in the Civil War. And, you know, he says uh, that this was a, a nation dedicated to the proposition that all people are created equal. Uh, all men, he said, I will say people, because we are, we are modern and we believe in the equality of, of men and women and, and non-binary people. Uh, but the United States is, is a country that's founded on great principles. Principles. Um, we don't always live up to those principles, but nobody does. Um, there is a powerful reality in the fact that in a world of imperfect countries, lots of people would like to come to this one. And I think that's something that people on the left should take seriously. And I also think that, you know, it, it, President Trump infuriates me, and he infuriates a lot of people I know. And so much of what is infuriating about him is the way that he denigrates our symbols and our values, that he talks about how you know we should celebrate America, and then he talks about we should celebrate Robert E. Lee, and we should celebrate Jefferson Davis. Uh, and those people, those are not American nationalists. They're, they're traitors. Um, and there's always been a tension in our country's history between the sort of principles of the Declaration of independence and the reality of uh, white ethnic nationalism. And I think that we see a lot of that conflict in our politics today. And it's sort of what this book is about, right? To have a great America in the future means we can't have a little America. We can't have a racist definition of what America is. We need to be open to the world and in touch with our values. Here's a tweet sort of apropos of uh, 
talking about where you stand and politically and so forth. Aaron tweets, this is a horrible goal. I see why Matt has been selling this book to right-wing audiences like Ben Shapiro fans, because this doesn't fly with rational thinking people. Population growth is a problem, <laughs> not a solution. We can't grow our way to maintaining U.S. global dominance. And what do you say about uh, carbon imprint here in the United States? Uh, especially well, I just... I just I have a question to these people, you know, who say, so I say that we should give money to families and reduce uh, child poverty. I say that we should provide preschool to young kids so they can have great educations. Um, I say that if we do those things, people will have more children. Now, to people on the left who say that's bad, um, say we should be shrinking the population, do they think we should do the opposite? Should we get rid of public schools? Should we um, stop having uh, the University of California? I mean, there's a lot we could do to make life even harder for parents and children if we took that position seriously. But I don't think anyone calling into your show believes that. I don't think anyone calling into your show wants to eliminate the education system, elevate the child poverty rate, take food stamp benefits away from low-income families. Um, so it, it confuses me, honestly, that some people on the left get so tied up in their uh, eco-Malthusianism that... They start rejecting ideas that they know perfectly well they support, right? So, you know, why do I go on Ben Shapiro's show? I mean, A, to sell books, but B, this is a country that has a lot of conservatives in it. I want to make the case to conservatives that they should care about a welfare state that supports families, that they should care about immigration, that they should care about housing and infrastructure. And I don't see anything wrong with that. Well, believe it or not, we do have conservative listeners as well. And uh, <laughs> let me bring another caller on. Padma joins us next. Padma, welcome. You're on the air. Good, good morning. In the very short human history of 500 years, a small group of European countries has taken over the largest part of the earth, namely Canada, America, South America, Australia, New Zealand. They wiped up the native populations and have migrated there. This leads to overcrowding. Let's say India has 2.5% of the world's surface area and 17% of the world's population. It's hugely unfair. So if an Indian professional comes to U.S. with master's degree or Ph.D., their green card, they have to wait 50 years, 5-0, to get their green card. It's, it's totally unfair. Whereas if somebody just comes here illegally, they get all the benefits. They get a lot of the sympathy, too. So you, anyhow you cut it, it is, has been a very unfair system. I don't think we should have population growth. There's enough people in the world, but we need better redistribution. Thank you so much. Okay, I thank you for that statement, Padma. That's Padma from Fremont. And here's Ali joining us next. Ali, thank you for waiting. Join us. You're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I missed the beginning of the conversation, so I might be a little bit redundant here. Um, but I'm just curious. Um, I heard the part where you were talking about creating dental programs for people to clean teeth and a lot of different ideas you were presenting for funding programs to get immigrants to have visas and come here and use these new skills that they've developed. It sounds like an expensive proposition, and I'm just curious what you think about using those resources for the huge amount of unemployed people in America. And I'm talking born Americans and immigrants, refugees, anyone who's here already. We also have an extraordinary homeless crisis. Um, people who are about to be evicted 
if you take it into real time right now, I think your ideas could be great if they were applied here. We have a mess in this country. We have also such, like the previous caller says, such a rampant inequality and hoarding of resources. I think 1% owns 80% of the resources in the United States. So within our own country, we have massive problems, massive. Each one of them is a massive problem. And to go and kind of spend all this money, I think you get my point. Anyway, I'm interested in your response to that. All right. Well, let me thank you for the call, Matt Iglesias. Well, this is what I'm talking about is, you know, we should be spending more money on supporting our families here at home. And, you know, I think that means largely taxing uh, the wealthy people who've secured the bulk of the gains over the past several years. Um, you know, homelessness, all these things, um, you know. The homelessness problem in the United States is not really a question of money. Uh, the, the financial cost of housing homeless people in places where housing is available is actually quite low. I mean, we have to do it. Uh, the problem is, is that the costs of building the housing in places like, like California, especially in the Bay Area, is exorbitant. And that's because uh, there's a regulatory issue that needs to be fixed. Um, and, you know, we, we should do that. Uh, but this is exactly my point. Like, I want to invest in the United States of America, in the American people. And I do want to bring more people in from abroad, but that only adds to our capacity to make these kind of investments. Well, let's let's talk about where the investments come from. Uh, when we think about the national debt, uh, you can get overwhelmed in the, uh, immediately. Uh, we were supposed to have these fiscal hawk Republicans uh, making progress on the national debt, but the national debt is, well, it's more than we've ever even anticipated or even dreamed of. Uh, and we have to tend to that? Well, you know, the interest on the national debt is at some of the lowest levels uh, that we've ever seen. So uh, it's weird, right? I mean, I think if you had told most people 20 years ago what the debt would look like in 2020, they'd say, oh, my God, uh, there's going to be a really big problem here. But it's just not true. It turns out to be the case uh, that there's incredible international demand for our treasury bonds. And, you know, any company that was facing interest rates as low as the American government would be borrowing as much money as possible and then uh, trying to make investments for the future. And that's what we ought to do. And particularly on the climate and energy type stuff that we were talking about before, it is absurd to not be spending more money on clean energy right now. Again, our guest is Matthew Iglesias, and this is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. You're listening to Forum, and I'm Michael Krasny. And let me bring another caller on here. Let me... Uh, Actually, before I do that, go to some comments. Uh, Matthew writes, what is, um, actually, a good question from John. Would the U.S. Rust Belt cities and towns welcome immigrants? I mean, I think a lot of them would, actually. Um, you know, this U.S. Conference of Mayors proposal, it was spearheaded by the mayor of Akron in Ohio. Um, and there's a lot of cities, you know, people uh, can stereotype whole regions of the country. Uh, but the people who live in, whether it's Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Rochester, New York, uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, these urban areas, they tend to be liberal. They tend to be cosmopolitan. Uh, they they are in cities for the same reason that people live in coastal cities. They they like what urban areas have to offer, but they could use some more vitality in them, frankly. And, and you know, not everyone would, but I think most of them would, yes. Where does healthcare figure into this? I mean, we're overwhelmed with our healthcare system. Uh, Affordable Care Act is still in, still being implemented, but at the same time, there are those who would like to see it assassinated and taken away. Uh, where do you see for healthcare provided for people? 
I mean, look, we've really got to worry that the Affordable Care Act is going to be struck down by the Supreme Court uh, with a new justice on the bench. I mean, I think that is a huge, huge concern. Millions of people could be losing their Medicaid coverage. They've timed it very cynically to make the decision right after the election to sort of minimize blowback to Republicans. And that's a huge deal in the short term. Look, in the longer term, there's just a lot that has to change in healthcare. I mean, I, <laughs> that would be a, a whole other book. Um, and you should look to maybe some of my colleagues like Dylan Scott, Sarah Cliff, if you're interested in health policy. Well, I'm interested in hearing from more of our listeners. Let's go to Dan next. Dan joining us. Good morning. Good morning. I love the show. Um, I was in uh, Japan in October before this pandemic. And it's well published because um, I read about it before I went there. But I noticed, uh, you know, the Japanese population is shrinking. It's getting older. Everyone knows that. Uh, they can't have people have more kids because it's it, they're not having more children. So the answer to Japan's problem with um, uh, workers and taxes and supporting the country is immigration. But if you spend time there and talk to people, the government has set up a system that makes it impossible to immigrate to Japan and work there. So they've gotten in the way of their own solution. And, you know, it's obvious if you spend time there for a week or two weeks, immigration is the answer to getting young workers into Japan. They just don't want to do it for a lot of cultural and bureaucratic reasons. And and I think that's where countries are headed, including us, if, if we don't do something about it. It's an interesting example, Dan, and I thank you for it. Japan has always liked to stay kind of uh, away from having uh, outsiders come into the country, um, going all the way back to Admiral Perry, really. I wonder about what your response is. uh, Well, you want want to respond first to the caller, but I've got some other things I'd like you to respond to. Matthew? Well, you know, it's true. This is a a tough issue for Japan. I think um, their now former prime minister, uh, Abe Shinzo, he has, in fact, increased immigration, but from a very low base. It's very controversial over there. you know, I, I don't want to give Japanese people too much advice. Uh, I will say that I think it is a strength of America that we have a more diverse country than Japan and we have a more open-minded uh, sort of population and that we have a tradition of saying, look, there are certain American principles that you can sign on to and then you can come here from India, from Taiwan, from all over the world. I mean, I have uh, ancestors from Poland and Lithuania, but from Cuba, uh, my, my wife's family's from Scotland, from Germany, um, all all over the world. And that's a strength of America. It's a problem for Japan that they don't have that tradition. Although, of course, there's there's great cultural traditions in Japan as well. It's your Cuban ancestry that prompts you to describe yourself as a tenuous Hispanic. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's one grandfather out of four uh, is is from Cuba. So, you know, I, I have ties to Latin America, and I, I have been known to uh, take offense at some of the things President Trump has said. At the same time, I don't want to, um, you know, paint myself as a less privileged person than I am in terms of, you know, skin color or, or my language capacities. Uh, that's what I was referring to there. Let me read some comments uh, before we have to say goodbye. Michael writes, the problem with our current debt load is that the money went to CEOs, not into American investment. And Jordan writes, he's right that in order for a tripling of population to not be an environmental disaster, we need to build and live differently. But I don't see Americans changing that much, even by 2100. Convince me they can change. And sort of along those lines, uh, Matthew says, what if the U.S. didn't have to be number one? It seems the premise of the book is to continue as a global hegemon. What if we aim to be number one in happiness and quality of life? Uh, How would the book read then? 
We got less than a minute here. You want to respond, Matthew? <laughs> I just, I don't think that's America. I don't, I don't think we want to say we're going to be number two to the People's Republic of China, and I don't think we should. We'll leave it there. Good to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That again is Matthew Iglesias. He's co-founder and senior correspondent for Vox, and his new book is called One Billion Americans, A Case for Thinking Bigger. And we're going to... Uh, leave you now, but uh, Mina Kim will join us for another hour of the forum program. And tomorrow I'll be back with you at the nine o'clock hour. And we're going to sort of tackle all these questions that have come up with this 200,000 horrible milestone of deaths in the United States due to COVID-19. President Trump uh, campaigning in Ohio now again, talking well in a very different tone about how um, I mean, he said some things that are pretty unbelievable. Uh, it's, it's not really affecting Americans, that sort of thing. We'll take up that tomorrow. Thank you for being a part of uh, affecting them in the, big, in the big picture. Thank you for being a part of the program. And please take care and stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.